Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show. We have another fun-filled episode here for you today. We're uh, we're keeping up with the uh, the interview series here uh, that we've been doing as of late. Uh, last interview we had was over in the, uh, the Texas 12th Congressional District with Jacob Letty, uh, running there as a libertarian. And today we have another big libertarian name. Uh, you probably know him from all of his activism within the Libertarian Party, as well as his activism uh, being an anti-war advocate. Uh, he, you can follow him on Twitter at Adam Kokesh and on Facebook at uh, Not for President. <laughs> this is uh, Adam Kokesh joining the Brian Nichols Show. Adam, thanks so much, man. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. And uh, Adam is, uh, as you know, you can follow him, as said, on Twitter at Adam Kokesh um, or on Facebook. You can find him. Adam, correct me if I'm wrong. It's at Not for President, right? No, no, no. Uh, Kokesh for Not President.com was our website right. for a while. Uh, and that was kind of an, an interesting legal situation uh, <laughs> that, that for, for reasons that we were in a, a pre-exploratory mode where we said, you know, we're not filing as a campaign. We're not telling people vote for me. We're going to say Kokosh for not president.com. And that, that saved us from having to file FEC paperwork at that point. But uh, now it's Kokosh for president.com. And I, I, I cringe a little bit every time someone says, oh, you're running for president. Oh, you've got it. And it's like, no. <laughs> I, I was much more comfortable saying not president because I don't think there's more uh, anything more anti-freedom or unlibertarian you can say than I want to be president of the United States. I, I want to be in charge of this giant violent monopoly and I want to force my vision on an entire country of people who are supposed to be free. I mean, it's insane. It's a position that, that shouldn't exist in the first place. Uh, and obviously, we, we understand now that, that government is a, is a fundamentally violent institution, that everything it does is backed up by the threat uh, of violence or actual violence. And humanity is, in many ways, already evolved past this. You know, we don't, we, we believe don't hit, don't steal, don't kill pretty universally. Uh, and we've come a long way. We're living in the most peaceful times in human history. You know, we are closer to a voluntary society than we've ever been. But we make this funny exception for government and say, well, don't hit unless you're a cop enforcing the drug war. You know, don't steal unless you're an IRS agent. Don't kill unless you're a soldier and a politician gives you an uh, order to go kill someone you know, on the other side of the planet. And what we are looking at with this campaign uh, I'm not running for president so much as I am running for president in order to turn the presidential election into a referendum on whether or not the federal government should be allowed to exist at all. So my platform is a peaceful, orderly, responsible dissolution of the entire United States federal government, leaving us with 50 independent states, five autonomous territories, and up to 562 sovereign native nations. So this is not pulling the rug out from underneath anybody except maybe some IRS agents, but even they will get uh, <laughs> decent decent notice from November to January. Uh, my platform is basically uh, contained in one executive order, will be. Right now, the, the campaign is, or the platform is five paragraphs on our website. The next version is going to be a 100-page book. And from that, we take a team of lawyers and policy experts and lock them in a room for a couple of months and say, turn this into a comprehensive binding legal document that covers every necessary aspect of uh, dissolving the federal government responsibly. And so when I sign this executive order, uh, it, it's going to immediately pardon everybody who's in federal prison for victimless crimes. That's, that's easy. Uh, it declares the federal government of no authority. Basically, it's bankrupt. And <clears throat> I'm, I resign. 
because it's not appropriate for me to be president. Uh, I'm going to be custodian of the federal government like a bankruptcy agent. And so I have a fiduciary responsibility to pay back the American people. And that's exactly what we're going to do. All right. So uh, we're going to dig into that and, and not only into your policy and your positions and platform, but also a little bit about your activism and what really uh, led you up to the moment right now where you you decide you're running for president in a form of being not president. Uh, so we'll, we'll cover that in a second. But uh, some housekeeping really quick for The Brian Nichols Show. And again, Adam, thank you for joining today. Um, so, yes, welcome to The Brian Nichols Show, part of the uh, the We Are Libertarians Network. Uh, yes, this show, uh, as we walk in, I've, I've already kind of given Adam a little heads up. Yeah, this is a libertarian podcast. Um, but the reality is that our audience is very diverse. Um, so across the political spectrum from individuals far on the left to the moderates in the middle, um, conservatives, and then, you know, from communists to anarchists and all those in between. Uh, but really the whole goal of the show is to uh, do three things, really. Number one, educate. Number two, enlighten. And number three, inform. Um, and with Adam on the show today, I want to have Adam kind of come in, talk about uh, you know his his platform, his positions, his his philosophy, and uh, you know hopefully be able to to reach out to people across the political aisles and and educate a little bit more about what Adam's looking to do going forward. Uh, but as for the Brian Nichols Show, you can follow me on Twitter and on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty, and please feel subscri uh, to subscribe to us on Patreon at B Nichols Liberty, uh, and also please feel free to share today's podcast on iTunes. Go ahead, uh, like and review. And uh, finally, uh, if you do enjoy today's uh, podcast, please share with your friends and family, uh, because again, we do have a really fun podcast today with Adam joining us here um, all the way over in the West Coast. So with that being said, Adam Kokesh, um, I had the pleasure of meeting you back in 2016 when you were doing your freedom tour here in Philadelphia. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a great opportunity to not only meet you, but kind of learn more about, uh, your positions and, and your platform, uh, as you were kind of doing the, uh, I guess, exploratory committee, if you will, into what you were uh, going to be looking at in 2020, uh, as you know, possibly the libertarian nominee, uh, right now, obviously there's your name. And then, uh, it, it appears the vice presidential candidate from 2016, Bill Weld has, uh, you know, kind of started floating the idea of him seeking the nomination as well. So, I mean, let's start off, kind of give me like a little bit of a elevator pitch, if you will. Why Adam Kokesh versus Bill Weld in 2020 for the libertarians within the libertarian movement? Well, that in and of itself is a, a bit of a misrepresentation of, of what I'm proposing here, because it's not Bill Weld versus Adam Kokesh, it's Bill Weld versus nobody. Should we have a president or not? And that, that really is critical to this pitch. And, and what it's about is localization. Uh, this is how we achieve a voluntary society, because we're not going to get it uh, with a revolution. This is going to be an evolutionary process of pushing power down to the local level, to the community, eventually down to the individual. And this is a major strategic shift for the libertarian movement. And I think this is a very important thing that I've learned over years of doing it wrong is that that, that is separating ethics from aesthetics, the ethical way of organizing society, of relating to our fellow human beings versus the aesthetics of what we want our ideal society to look like. So the, let's just take the gun position or the drug position, for examples, right? And they're really obvious, easy ones. You know, uh, is, is the libertarian position pro-gun or pro-drug? The answer is neither. Uh, you know, pro-gun, anti-gun, pro-drug, anti-drug. The, the libertarian position is pro-private property. If you want to ban guns on your property, you're welcome to do that. It's unlibertarian of me to say you have to allow guns 
on your own property if you don't want them. Same thing with drugs. And this applies to the community level too. And this is where you know things sort of get tricky for libertarians, but localization untie untangles all these knots. So I'm so kind of really quick, I'm kind of hearing like a little bit of a federalist almost appeal. Is that kind of the the vibe that you're giving no, off? No, because the idea of federalism suggests the necessity of government. Uh, and, and that's uh, you know as a coercive institution. L let me just get get to this point of like what this means reframing libertarianism because instead of saying we're you know if you want to come together on your private property you want to create a gun-free community you can do that right we want to respect your right as a community to organize you know an anti-gun community that's fine i'm not going to live there but you can do that you know maybe you want to have a community where drugs aren't allowed like that's cool i'm not going to come to any of your parties but hey that's just you know my personal preferences right and so what I'm getting at here is that the libertarian answer isn't no government or even limited government, although limited government is even worse because it's really an imposition of your aesthetics. I want government as the social organization tool that it is to do this, this and this and nothing else. But the libertarian answer is you can have as much government as you want, as long as it's voluntary, as long as it respects private property. So how do we move in that direction? And when you try to get libertarians to agree on a specific vision, you know, we're all going to see, we're all going to have different opinions. We're all going to have different visions. And that's, it, it, it's impossible to even unite the splinter groups in libertarianism. But the idea of localization of you get what you want in your community, you get what you want out of government when it's local and when it's voluntary, this is uniting, not just the splinter groups within libertarianism, this unites left, right, and center against the common enemy of big centralized government. And the strategy of saying, let's get government as local as possible is the everybody gets what they want strategy. So I, I empathize. And I, 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 I think that's an idea in a world where libertarians really want to, to be. Um, I mean, looking at your, your, your Twitter page, for instance, what the, your very first part of your header says a pragmatic uh, libertarian. So, what and I'm saying this with all due respect, what part of that platform do you think is pragmatic in terms of appealing to your average everyday voter who knows nothing really of a true voluntary libertarian society in terms of being able to not only one be able to uh, have a palatable approach to this for them to digest it and be able to say, OK, that makes sense. But also, number two, then to actually, I guess have this be something that is is tangible and real versus just you know a, a big uh you know mental masturbation kind of thought experiment when you look at how americans vote and don't vote what you realize is that localization is the most practical way to build a winning coalition because right now in, in presidential elections you get about 60 percent of eligible voters turning out in off-year elections, it's closer to 30%. And if you look at a lot of small local or you know off-season elections, turnout's like 15, 20%. It's insane. So it, it's no more than you know really 30% of the population, if that, who's like, I got to vote like it's my job. It's my duty. Red team go, blue team go. If I don't vote Republican, if I don't vote Democrat, the sky's going to fall and America's going to fail. You know, I mean, that is, a, that is a tiny majority of the population or tiny minority in the population that, it, you know, we are tricked into thinking is the majority. 
But the majority of people who vote are reluctant voters who only come out in presidential years and generally know that it's a waste of their time. But that leaves 40%, 40% who don't vote. Now, maybe some of them are just truly checked out and will never care, and that's fine. But say we get 30% from that and the 30% of reluctant voters, that's 60% for the localization coalition to 15% Republicans, 15% Democrats. It's not practical to have people in San Francisco writing laws for people in San Antonio. It's not practical to have Washington, D.C. imposing its policy on a country of 330 million people. It's not practical to keep this monstrosity going, going further into debt you know, and possibly about to go off a fiscal cliff. The sooner we apply a solution as big as the problem, the better off we're going to be. So, so, with, this, so that right there, that, was, that seems like more federalist, is, is it not? I mean, that, I guess that's where I'm getting a little confused. So, I mean, I had William F. Buckley O'Reilly, who is the uh, the uh, pro, chair pro tem for the Federalist Party of America. Um, and, you know, we went through what the Federalist Party of America was standing for. And their platform, it essentially sounds almost identical to that of yours, only you're, I guess you're advocating more for the elimination of the federal government. Is that fair? Yes. Well, uh, certainly to declare it of no authority, bankrupt and, and not uh, you know, legitimately capable of enforcing any federal laws. OK, so I, I'm trying to wrap my head around all of this altogether. So I, I empathize with the idea of, of states rights and, you know, not even so much state rights, but like local governments and people being able to make laws or uh, maybe not necessarily make laws, just create a society that's more local. But. Isn't there a role? Now, this is the, this is the question I know you're going to get asked if, if you get to the point of being the 2020 nominee. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you make it to the debate stage. They're going to say, well, Adam, right now we have the United States as the leading power in the world. Um, you know, our military is the largest in the world. The reason we have our military, they're going to say, is because we need to keep America safe. But we also need to, you know, crush the likes of ISIS and, and you know, keep North Korea in check and keep Iran in check. Uh, you know. How how would an Adam Kokesh approach that kind of a question from the debate stage and, and you know help the average, uh, I guess, American voter rationalize the idea of not having a military as there would not be a federal government? Well, first of all, the Dalai Lama was once asked if he was president, what he would do. And he said, I would call things by their true names. And... A lot of what you just said includes a lot of Amero fantasy land propaganda language of collectivism, of we's and ours. And I think it's one of the most important things for the American people to understand that if America has anything to do with freedom, we cannot let the federal government, we cannot let any government tell us how we even think of ourselves as citizens, as human beings, as, as members of a community or a citizenry. And this idea of a military keeping us safe is one of the most insane, false premises of government. Why? Uh, We have been lied to from the very beginning when we're told that wars are fought between countries because it's not true. You know, America versus Japan versus Germany versus whatever. And it's like, no, wars are conducted by governments using violence to expand their protection rackets. And having a military makes you less safe because the founders understood this. The founders understood that having a military says we're willing to be ruled. 
We're willing to be subjugated. We're willing to be exploited by a government. They said that we should not have explicitly a standing army at all. We should have a militia-based defense. Militaries defend government's ability to govern, to rule, to subjugate, whereas militias are the only legitimate defense of a free people, a well-armed population that refuses to be governed by anyone. So are we, I mean, I'm going to ask you personally, do you reject the notion that there are countries out there like a, a Russia or a China who, if they saw a weaker America, that they wouldn't take advantage of that? Uh, absolutely not. In fact, it, it makes us uh, less vulnerable to say that, hey, if you come here, it's going to be real. If you come here and you try to govern, it's going to end badly for you. But more importantly, in the world that we're living in today, it's not like the federal government of the United States is going to be able to just disappear without anybody noticing, right? It's not like the people of China are going, oh, yeah, we really want a war with America. It's just their darn federal government standing in the way. As soon as it gets out of the way, we're going to demand that our government invade. No, of course not. When the United States decides that we are going to lead the world forward in freedom again, as we did in the first American Revolution, by overthrowing the biggest empire the world had ever known, we are going to be showing the way forward. The people of China are not going to be going, oh, please, government, let's have another war. Let's let's have lots of people dying. Let's dress up millions of gullible young men in silly costumes to meet in the middle of a field where none of them live and kill each other because they're wearing different colors. You just can't get away with those kinds of lies necessary to make that kind of war possible in the age of the Internet. No, the people of China will be looking at their central government going, hmm, do we really need you? And the answer is going to be all over the world. A resounding no. So I ask you this because I think it's good for people to hear your perspective because not only is this your position, but you come from a position of experience. You yourself was were in the, the armed services. So can you kind of, I guess, talk about your experience in the armed services and what made you transform into the anti-war activist slash, um, you know, I guess the, the presidential candidate that you are now, um, you know, with, with this this platform that you're you're presenting? Sure. Well, I volunteered to join the Marines when I was 17 and enlisted in the delayed entry program, went to boot camp at, at age 18 in 2000. And I was a reservist going to college when I volunteered to uh, go to Iraq with a civil affairs unit. And at the time, uh, I was a libertarian, but I didn't really understand, understand uh, what it meant. I didn't understand how it applied to militarism, obviously. I didn't understand it as, as a message of ethics. And ultimately, if I may just sidebar for a second here, the idea of freedom itself. Freedom is what you have when no one is forcing their will on you. And forcing your will on someone else is unethical. So the message of freedom is about creating a universally nonviolent ethical society. That's really the objective of applying these principles. So I learned the hard way that war is a racket, as Major General Smedley Butler of the Marine Corps taught. Now, it's funny because they learned about Major Butler in, uh, excuse me, uh, General Smedley Butler in, uh, in boot camp, and they taught us of, you know, all of his military exploits, but they don't teach you that when he got out of the military, he wrote a book called War is a Racket, in which he described himself as a high-class muscle man for big business. And so I got out and I joined Iraq Veterans Against the War and it was surrounded by lefties in the anti-war movement 
when I, or I was surrounded when I decided that I needed to have uh, an airtight political perspective, uh, an airtight worldview. We, we had these wonderful conversations, arguments, debates. And this is with, you know, mostly other dudes, veterans who were getting arrested with me, who I knew weren't, you know, plants mostly, at least they were there for the right reasons. And a lot of our conversations, you know, came down to differences of opinion. And I was like, you know, if, if we really care about this, there has to be, you know, an absolute decisive answer to these questions about government. And it really just comes from understanding government properly. Uh, government, as, as, as we know it, is a violent coercive territorial monopoly. It is a fundamentally unethical institution that violates individual rights in order to exist because taxation is theft. It is a violation of your property and it makes illegitimate property claims to be able to assert its authority over an entire territory. So when you realize that, you know, humanity's come a long way in terms of embracing ethics, we just make this little exception for government. You know, again, the, the, the sooner you see that and, and we can all move past it, the better off we'll be. But if I may just bring it back to the, to the strategy here yeah, absolutely. quickly. For, for a lot of us and for the people listening to this podcast, uh, one of the frustrations that we run into is that the average person doesn't care about these things. And that's okay. Most human beings uh, live great lives where government has, at least as they see it, a, a very minimal role anyway. And they, they're happy you know, living in that kind of denial because it's practical for them. Right, they can live comfortably. They can enjoy life. They have a very high standard of living here as protected citizens of the empire in the United States, especially. So, it, it is incumbent upon us to to take leadership and say, "Look, you know, we can. These are our principles. This is our philosophy. You can read all these books if you want, but you don't have to. We're going to make this easy for you. Come out and vote, and it might be the last time you ever have to vote in a federal election." So, let's localize government. Let's get it. Let's make it so that it practically serves you and your community better. Now, you mentioned um, the last time you'd have to go out and vote in a federal election. So that actually is a great um, segue because I did a, I did reach out to the audience um, for some questions. And one of the questions, here's a question from Rick. Um, he asked, what total vote count nationally do you expect to achieve if you're the 2020 uh, Libertarian presidential nominee? Uh, if nominated, and if in uh, with that number, why would you, uh, uh, I guess, expect to reach that number? Sure. Well, if I may answer just with a, a slightly broader perspective on on the numbers here and, mm -hmm. and what it means with this idea, uh, you know, Gary Johnson got around four percent in 2016 in what was supposed to be the the best year for the Libertarian Party, the best opportunity, the two worst old party candidates we've ever had. And what he presented was an unlibertarian platform. It was, you know, socially liberal, fiscally conservative. I'm the best of both worlds. And the American people say, oh, you mean both crap worlds of politics that we don't want anything to do with anyway. So <laughs> what we're talking about is a fundamental paradigm shift in how we look at government globally. You know, should it be concentrated in large centralized powers or should it be decentralized and localized down to the community level? And I'm so confident in this idea that I, I know if we just get this in front of the American people in a credible way, it's just a matter of time before enough people go, yeah, they're right. We don't need to have a president. We don't need a federal government. We'll be better off with government localized. So in 2020, we win the nomination. We plant the flag on this idea. 
and it's possible that we win in in 2020 if this is if we hit that tipping point if we, if we're really at that point what i think is much more likely to happen is that we get somewhere around 10% and that's enough to introduce this idea of localization into the mainstream american political dialogue and i'm going to run until the federal government doesn't exist or until we win or so, until someone better than me comes along to win on this platform because it really is inevitable the federal government's not going to last forever so if we get the nomination in, in 2020 and introduce this idea, uh, but we don't win, then I think we're, it would be inevitable that we win in 24. All right. Um, so that it's a good segue, I guess, into another question, because obviously here we are um, recording in uh, May 2018. Um, the question was raised by, by Jeremiah, and the question was related to your activism. Um, so obviously you, you are well known, uh, not only in libertarian circles, but in, uh, I'd say the larger activist, uh, sector, just because, you know, you've, you've been willing to, to face the civil disobedience and go to jail for what you believe in. Um, so with that being said, obviously, if you're running for, uh, the libertarian nomination and, and to be president and then, uh, you know, thereafter, you'd need to be able to be out of, <laughs> if you will, out of change in, or, in order to be out there campaigning and reaching out to the voters. So over the next two years between now and the election, do you see yourself taking on the activist role that might put you in a situation where you're behind bars or at the very least not able to reach out to uh, your potential constituents? Uh, I'm not actively pursuing you know, any particular campaigns of civil disobedience right now in order to focus on the campaign. There may be opportunities where there are very minor risks. You know, most of the civil disobedience that I've done is, you know, misdemeanor level, very, very little of it in, in the felony range. So there's relatively little chance of it you know, becoming an issue anyhow. And, and I, I've certainly got the experience managing tricky legal situations at this point. <laughs> That's a very, uh, very tactful way to put that. Um, so uh, now one question, one question that was raised up here, and this kind of goes, uh, this is from Chris. Um, it was a question with regards to your, uh, I guess your, your approach to what was Bill Weld um, as a libertarian. So the question was, why would you give uh, Cynthia McKinney a pass when you wouldn't give a pass to Bill Barr or, or I'm a, yeah, Bill, uh, Barr or Bill Weld or even Gary Johnson to a lesser degree, um, with Barr having a general platform aligned with libertarian principles, whereas McKinney was much more kind of in the um, the Bernie Sanders camp. Yeah, uh, well, <clears throat> excuse me about Bill Weld in particular. Uh, there are a couple of things. Let me let me stop and and, and step back first and say you know it, yeah. it is really important that we are welcoming and we are encouraging and we recognize that people change and, and you know, realizing that you're a libertarian is, is a transition and uh, applying the principles universally is a, a process. Although what you see when someone is confronted with the message really reveals a lot about their character. And for someone like Cynthia McKinney, I've always respected her as an activist, as a politician, as a congresswoman, as a candidate, uh, you know, Green Party nominee for president. She has always engaged with uh, a sense of moral integrity. And people like that, when they come towards libertarianism, they don't go backwards. You know, they don't waver. 
They, they, mm-hmm. they might take their time. They might take some comfortable positions for the time being while they think things through, but they don't go backward. They don't end up vouching for Hillary Clinton after winning the LP nominee for vice president. You know, And, and I hope that Bill Weld can change. I, I hope that he can one day uh, become a libertarian. In fact, I, I don't really care anymore uh, if people become libertarian so much as if they uh, endorse localization. You know, if they're willing to unite uh, on that much more universal concept than any particular political philosophy. So, you know, it's the same thing with Bob Barr. You look at his political career, you look at his history, and you don't see an activist. You don't see someone who's trying to make the world a better place. You see an opportunist. And that's what I see most in, in Bill Weld. And, and that's, that's why I would rather use him as a foil than an ally because i don't think someone like him will 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 ever become an ally unless uh socially politically morally in in their own minds they're they're really backed into a corner and intellectually forced to confront the evil of statism that they have supported in the past so one thing that i know will be asked so i think i i would like to hear your your kind of um you walked through this yourself. So one problem that I know a lot of libertarians have had, and you kind of addressed it right here, is that they're not welcoming and encouraging. So is it your position that, like, in order to be a, a quote-unquote libertarian, you have to be essentially in the activist camp uh, cap of being an, an anarcho-capitalist? Or, or are you no, willing no, to... No, 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 no. Okay. Can you, can you kind no, of so, explain that then? Yeah, yeah, no, and this, this is you know, kind of a semantics conversation, right? How are we using these terms? Uh, libertarian, just, I think the broadest definition is the most important one, is that it's someone who believes in freedom. Uh, someone who believes in freedom doesn't necessarily understand it, but when you understand it, you, you know, would then uh, be capable of signing the pledge that you take when you join the Libertarian Party, which says, I oppose the initiation of force to achieve social and political goals. And so this is the other thing that's really offensive about Bill Weld is the sort of dishonesty for him to, you know, sign that pledge and then advocate for so many coercive government policies. So, you know, that's those are the definitions of, of, of libertarian in, in the, those two senses. I like to be very broad and inclusive with the term libertarian. And I, and I like to say that, you know, everybody's a libertarian. They just haven't figured it out yet that if you are a human being if you are an individual consciousness in a carbon-based life form body with free will with with an independent desire you want that will to be respected you're a libertarian you you inherently have a sense of right and wrong of ethics and justice and libertarianism as a political philosophy is is just the consistent application of those principles so there is a, a kind of binary thing like you know you're pregnant or you're not you're libertarian or you're not but if you want to be, you know, really inclusive with it, you have to say, well, essentially, it's everybody. It's every human being on the planet. So you stated that you, you while, while being welcoming and encouraging, it's really to look at the people being willing to, to change and grow. Um, so, I mean, with, with that, looking at what we have with Bill Weld, it, not only is his vice presidential candidacy in 2016, but his potential, geo, or his potential 2020 um, presidential uh, candidacy for the LP, um, you know, looking at Bill Weld from where he came from being, you know, a Republican governor in the, the 90s in Massachusetts, um, advocating for, um, I would say, would be libertarian-leaning positions as a GOP governor in a very blue state, up to where he is now in 2018. 
do you not see that he has, I guess, I want to say advocated or at least has tried to grow and learn more about libertarian philosophy um, versus where he's come from? And that wouldn't make him fit in with what you're you're looking for in a libertarian presidential candidate? Um, I mean, what I'm looking for in a libertarian presidential candidate is someone who's going to represent the message, reach the mainstream of the American public with a practical platform and present a platform that is ethical and in line with the message. And, and I don't think Bill Weld is really close to achieving any of those things. So what specifically about Bill Weld's messaging aren't you on board with? Just so we can, we can kind of, I guess, really look at a pros-cons list between Adam Kokish for 2020 versus Bill Weld for 2020. What makes you better than Bill in terms of your application of the principles? And what is it that Bill is bringing to the table that you don't feel fit those principles? Bill talks about policy from a perspective of, well, this sounds good. Well, I like this. Well, this might work. And what a libertarian does is approach every political question from the perspective of, is this ethical? Is this in line with my fundamental moral principles? And what we saw was the difference. You know, I, I would you know, very humbly suggest that the difference between Bill Weld and I is like the difference between Gary Johnson and Ron Paul. And while Ron Paul was running as a constitutionalist in a Republican primary for president, he spoke from principle. He spoke with a ethically consistent message. And that's what inspires people. That's what motivates people. When you come out uh, with, with the Bill Weld approach and say, well, you know, I'm socially liberal, fiscally conservative, that, that doesn't really inspire anybody. And the result was that you know, he vouched for Hillary Clinton to get people to not support Trump because he realized that, you know, the Johnson well ticket was so weak that a lot of libertarians were going towards Trump and that that was going to, you know, throw him the election. But if, if you're really a libertarian, you don't, you know, you don't care between the difference or about the difference between uh, Trump and Clinton because they're just different flavors of statism. And while Bill Weld might represent a kinder, gentler, version of statism, that, that's still what he's offering. Now, having listened to him recently uh, at the California Libertarian Party convention even, yeah, I do think he's coming around. I do think he's getting better. Uh, I, I just don't think that someone you know, who represents that kind of mainstream approach, that kind of mainstream credibility is going to hold sway with the American voters you know, in the post-Trump era. So I had a couple questions myself. Um, and this is from my background, so I'm just a little bit about me, Adam. So I, I've been ingrained in politics my whole life, uh, specifically in the uh, the campaign world of politics. And one thing that I've uh, really been able to tip my hat on is is not only uh, public relations and marketing, uh, but campaign strategy. And uh, one thing I think is going to be important for any libertarian uh, running in 2020 is to be able to message to people not within the Libertarian Party to get out of the echo chamber of Libertarian philosophy and, and to speak on a, a pragmatic, a, an easy-to-understand, easy-to-digest message. Um, so with that being said, looking at right now where we stand in 2018, obviously we are, uh, as Libertarians, we're in a very, very um, strong position to reach new voters. But at the same point in time, we have a lot against us because we're, we're facing a two-party system that has been quite literally built to keep third parties down. So regardless of whether or not we agree with the, the reality of it, 
we have to win over some GOP and, and Democratic voters to the libertarian message. So with you as, let's say, in 2020... Well, hold, as- hold, on, hold on, hold on. Before you get to that, I'm going I'm to say I'm going to have to disagree with that particular premise. Like I did the uh, voter demographic breakdown earlier. If I mean, even if you just say that the 60% of consistent voters are, you know, hardcore Democrats, Republicans, well, we go for the 40% non-voters, we win. You know, we don't have to go... I like and if, if anything, the people at this point who are still clinging to the old parties and their ideologies and their, you know, their their bullshit, like no, no, we we really don't need them. That, that that's something that the mainstream media has convinced us of by making the old parties and this you know false left right spectrum much more relevant than it really is. Well, I mean, there's a study that was done um, back, I think it was just past couple months ago, um, that focused on if, if people voted for none of the above uh, or simply did not vote, that it is like over, I think it was like something ridiculous, like 90 or 70, 85%, 90% of the Electoral College would have gone to the, the nobody candidate. Um, yep. And I think that's just partly speaking to what you're referring to. Um, but I mean, we, we can't just ignore the fact that there are people out there who are staunch Democrats and staunch Republicans, and they're going to they're gonna fall into that paradigm of the, the red. Oh, blue no, kind we of- can. We can, because that's a minority. Those, those are very, very small minorities. In fact, I think it's been a major losing strategy for the Libertarian Party to try to convince hardcore Democrats and hardcore Rep- Republicans to switch. We should be focused on motivating people who understand that the old parties are are just you know, criminal enterprises and showing them that there's a real alternative rather than banging our heads against that wall. Okay. So let's, let's take that premise then. Um, I, I'm going to respectfully disagree. That's where we are, but uh, let's say, let's take the, the position you're putting right, right now. So let's say you have your average, we'll say moderate or independent voter who they're politically apathetic. They don't really, sure. um, they're not into the, the, the political cycle. Like, like we politicos are, they're not, you know, they're not well read on, on Hayek or, or Rothbard. They don't know yep. about Milton Friedman. They, they haven't heard about John Stuart Mill. They're just your average everyday run of the mill mom and dad, you know, picking the kids up from soccer practice, you know, going to the, the school board meeting. They want a person to vote for and they're looking at the 2020 options. What's the message that you're going to bring to them that's going to be easier for them to digest and say, OK, that makes sense. Let's pull a trigger for Adam Kokesh. We're going to dissolve the federal government in a peaceful, orderly manner. We are going to pay back the American people who are the true debtors of this criminal institution. And we are going to localize government power as much as possible so it can better serve you and your needs in your community. And you think that they'll be on board with the idea of dissolving the federal government? When they get into it at that level of policy, you know, most... I mean, you ask me any question, this is the one thing we haven't covered so far is, you know, how how does this relate to specific functions of government or specific agencies? And I can show you with this with this plan, how basically every function of government as it relates to you and individual in your state is immediately improved by getting rid of this layer of fat at the top. When we talk about dissolving the federal government, we're only actually getting rid of three million out of 22 million government employees in the entire United States. We're just cutting this layer of wasteful, destructive fat off the top. See, now this is this is where I think we're gonna have an issue with uh, the messaging because your average, you know, politically apathetic voter, they don't look at the the entity that is the federal government as being the wasteful 
uh, you know, the wasteful enterprise that it is. Not, not that I disagree. I think it is. I think it is wasteful. But I, I, to message them, it's going to be hard to get. No, I see you're not giving them enough credit. I mean, what's Congress's approval rating right now? Four like, percent. Yeah, four or five percent. Correct. I mean, it's insane. Most so the American people, you know, have heard enough headlines that they're just so jaded on them now. When you go, hey, hey, we'll just get rid of this whole thing for you. We got we got a plan. It's going to be peaceful, orderly, responsible. It's going to be better than a collapse. We can avoid a collapse by doing this way. They've they've heard enough headlines of you know. Pentagon lost $3 trillion. Pentagon lost $6 trillion. NSA collecting all your phone records. You know, the, just the, the, the swamp, the shadow government. Like, they, they know all of this stuff. They, they, they understand that the criminal, that it's a fundamentally destructive, wasteful criminal organization. They, so are, they already know this. Let me ask you this then. So if they know that, and I hope they do know that, then why do the likes of the the Lindsey Grahams and the Mitch McConnells and the Chuck Schumers and the Nancy Pelosi's of the world keep getting elected every single year? It, why is it that they keep coming back if the American people are, are supposedly know all this stuff? Well, a lot of that's manipulation of the political system by those old parties, as you know from the recent release of the recorded phone call on of. Uh, well, I forget who, one of the Democratic Party operatives, I think it was a congressman uh, talking to another congressional candidate who was less uh, on the party line, convincing him to get out of the race. Uh, there, there's all sorts of manipulation. And by and large, the American people feel helpless and hopeless. And when you say, hey, come come out and vote for this libertarian senator candidate who's running against Chuck Schumer, they're like, yeah, there's just there's no chance. And unless you say, look, no, we're applying a, a solution as big as the problem, it, it's worth it now. We're, we're, at, we're not trying to you know, tinker around the edges or we're not trying to make government kinder and gentler. No, we're just, we're just going to get rid of this layer and we're going to get rid of it one layer at a time until it's down to the community level. All right, man. Hey, well, listen, I appreciate the, uh, the, the, the back and forth here. And the reason I'm asking this is because I know these are going to be tough questions that, you know, if, if we get the chance to have you as the nominee and you're on the debate stage versus Trump and, let's say, you know, Kamala Harris or, or who have you, the Democrats pick, these are going to be questions you're going to get asked. And I know it's going to be tough questions. And, uh, you know, we just need, I need to make sure that our, our guy's prepared, right? Uh, so um, with I, don't, any- I, don't think these questions, I don't think these questions are tough at all. I mean, I, I would turn this around on them. How do you plan on keeping the federal government going with this financial system? How do you plan on keeping this corrupt institution uh, pulling the wool over Americans' eyes uh, election after election? How do you plan on ripping people off and them not noticing year after year? You know, it's it's crap. Of course not. They can't do it. They cannot keep the system going. The sooner we face up to that as a people, the better off we'll be. The really hard questions are going to be for the Republicans and Democrats in 2020. Like, how do you sleep at night peddling this crap? <laughs> how do you sleep at night selling out the American people for special interest? Because they know better now. And this racket is not going to last long when, when, you know, in the age of the Internet, when people can see through it so easily, when we have the, the wealth of of information knowledge at our fingertips that, that we have never had before to be able to see through this racket, see through these lies. Let me just point out one thing, Brian, for, for you know, anybody in the audience who, who might be skeptical about this, who goes, well, it all sounds right, but it also just sounds like too much. Well, one of the important things to recognize about the age that we're living in is the rate of acceleration that we're experiencing due to technology driven primarily by Moore's law, you know, computing power doubling uh, every 18 months or so, driving productivity, communications technology, connectedness, awareness, information availability, uh, all of these things 
are accelerating and we are rendering government obsolete. Look at Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. The idea of government running a monetary system to rip us off by printing money out of thin air, gone. And, and it, it, we could be uh, free of this racket in a couple of months. We could be one killer app away from Bitcoin becoming the global currency, right? Self-driving cars, the drug war racket goes away. The road enforcement racket goes away. Uh, you know, all of these things are just being rendered obsolete by government. What we do as the chattering class, as the political class, is, is so much less significant than that technological progress. And if you look at the exponential nature of this, just think for a second. The change that we have experienced in the last 10 years is equivalent to the change of the last 100 years, which is equivalent to the change of the last 1,000 years. You see where this is going? Now mm -hmm. flip it around and go back to the present day. It means the change that's happened in the last 10 years is going to happen in the next one year. And then that amount of change is going to be happening in a couple of months. And then weeks and then days and then hours. That's the nature of technology and this acceleration. Government is already obsolete. The sooner we realize it, the better off we will be. The idea that it sticks around with or without me, with or without you, Brian, with or without any other activists, that's determined by forces of nature bigger than any of us. Humanity is going to achieve a voluntary society one way or another because violence is never in humanity's best interest. So on that note, the website where you can find my book that explains this concept of the asymptote and localization <laughs> is thefreedomline.com. Three words. It's easier than remembering how to spell my last name, and you can find all of my other stuff from there, including kokeshforpresident.com. You can get my book for free in every digital format, including audiobook at thefreedomline.com. And Brian, thank you for this opportunity, and thanks to your audience for, for listening all the way through with us. Absolutely. Well, Adam, hey, listen to me. I appreciate you taking the time uh, from your very, very busy schedule out on the road to uh, to, to sit down and kind of walk through exactly what your positions are and, and what you're looking to do going forward. And I think um, at the very least, this will help give some answers uh, to the, those who are a little Adam Kokesh curious um, and hopefully uh, give you some, some momentum going forward to help get your message out there to people who, who are interested in learning and looking for alternatives. And uh, as you said, to hopefully... Um, be able to, in your world, get rid of the uh, federal government. So hopefully you've answered their questions as well. Um, yeah, well, Brian, if, if you get, if you get well, the one thing we really didn't get into very much was the actual you know, agency by agency practical policy of the dissolution. So maybe if you get some questions about that, we can do a follow-up episode. Absolutely, man. And uh, yeah, absolutely love to have you on again because I think this is a great conversation. And honestly, it's conversations that we need to have more often. Um, so I mean, with that being said, you can follow Adam on Twitter at Adam Kokesh. Uh, and you can go ahead and follow him on uh, on Facebook. It's at uh, Kokesh. No, 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 no. Well, I'm off Facebook. I'm off Facebook. Get on Steam it. On I Steam. go to my Facebook <laughs> and you'll see I'm, I'm not here anymore. Find me on Steam it. Notice. Yeah, Steam it. <laughs> Blockchain-based social media. The future is here. Get it. You know, be be a part of the change that you wish to see in the world and get off of Facebook. <laughs> awesome. And, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can follow me on uh, on Twitter and unfortunately still follow me on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty. Uh, and again, if you like today's episode, please feel free to go to iTunes, like and review and share it with your friends and family. But until next time, uh, it's Brian Nichols signing off in the Brian Nichols show for Adam Kokesh. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Brian.